Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Melbourne International Film Festival is on at the moment, you may well have noticed, uh, and we're going to be talking Australian horror films, and in particular, the new feature film Godless, Godless the Eastfield Exorcism, and director Nick Kazakis will be joining me in the studio to talk about the feature film. Nick Kazakis, Nick, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me, Richard. You've been a horror fan for a while. Yeah. I'm actually more a horror fan than I am a director, I'd say. So I love horror. It just I've been brought up on it probably to the point where I got into it too early. I think it was like six when I watched my first horror and it traumatised me. And therapy would have been cheaper, but instead I decided to pursue film. So, What was that first horror film? Uh, it was The Exorcist. Oh, wow. I saw that. Six or seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Which is kind of fitting for this in a way, but it was also I saw Alien as well and Evil Dead. I saw Jaws at about the same age. I think I was about seven or eight. Uh, yeah. So equally traumatised, but also became equally fascinated with horror as a genre. Yeah. One of the things that I found fascinating now, disclaimer, I've not watched all of the film because I try to prefer to have the full experience in a cinema if I can, but what I've watched certainly gave me a sense of tone and style. And, yep. and I also wanted to ask about influences. Uh, for example, uh, this is a film in which... Uh, religious mania meets mental illness meets perhaps the supernatural. And that reminded me of a, a recent Irish horror film I saw about uh, somebody's mother who may be mentally ill or may be a changeling. Uh, also, the film with its uh, religious elements reminded me of the, uh, the I guess, the it's one of the th foundational three films of folk horror, um, uh, Witch Hunter General for example. So I wanted to ask about your cinematic influences and how they shaped this particular feature film, which is your first solo feature as a director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, There's like so many points of influences that we've got here. Obviously, The Exorcist was a big one and we took a lot of visuals from that, but we've also taken from other films like Snowtown and the bleakness of that and just that kind of drama horror that kind of comes from that and the suspense. Uh, from there, we probably have like some more modern influences, which is Saint Maud, which I'm not sure if that's what you were referencing, but I don't know where Saint Maud is from, but that was a, it had like a, a tie in f through spirituality and also supernatural um, elements and mental health issues and all that. So those were like the few films that we kind of looked at heavily and it's all over our pitch decks. So like, you know, it's uh, they're, they're a very common th uh, theme that we've um, kind of pushed through with. Now, the Irish film I was thinking of was uh, You Are Not My Mother, you are not my uh, mother. directed by Kate Dolan. Um, definitely recommend I'll checking it out. check it out, yeah. Part yeah. of a, the new wave of Irish horror. But it also feels like there's a new wave of Australian horror. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really exciting time. Like, we've been lucky enough to travel the world with uh, some films that we've been playing at, at festivals, uh, playing with at festivals, and it's films like uh, Late Night with the Devil from the Cairns Brothers and Talk to Me from the Philippus and, um, yeah, and Monolith, Matt Vesley, and it's just been like... The, the whole Australian family seems to be uh, congregating all over the world and it's so cool to be a part of that. What do you think's driving that? Uh, something's in the water. So, like, I don't know. We're, we're, I, I have no idea. It's just maybe we just came out of the gates, like we were sort of isolated for a little bit and then we're just like, you know what, let's just explode out and let's just go and get it. So I don't know what's happened, but I know we've always had this passion for horror in this country. You know, it's like it goes back to the exploitation days. You've got, like, films like Patrick and Road Games and all that kind of stuff, and I just feel like we've always been cemented in there, but now there's so many more pathways to get our films out there and I think people are starting to see it and recognise it. So it's really... Really, it's really cool. It does feel like um, genre goes in waves sometimes and certainly the Australian film funding bodies seem to go, ugh, genre filmmaking, no, that's not our cup of tea, we won't support that kind of thing. So you got this wave of kind of low-budget, kind of raw, uh, really delightful films. Um, but then with the international success of The Babadook, for example, um, because when, say, Lake Mungo came out, which is essentially a ghost story, yeah. uh, it didn't. It's, it was successful, but not in the same way, and it certainly didn't spark a, a new wave of ghost stories in the cinema. The Babadook seems to have, because of its popularity, I wonder if there's a, a connection there between 
I know your film uh, was not funded, for example. It's a low-budget independent horror film. But I did wonder if the success of The Babadook has made other filmmakers and perhaps film funding bodies as well go, oh, maybe there's something in this. I hope so. If you'd have to talk to my producer, Lauren Simpson, who'd know a lot more of the uh, funding side of things. But when we went into this, um, it, like there was, from my perspective as the director, it was it was so fun to go out rogue, you know, and just go and do it. Like I'm sure uh, Lauren, Tim, Tony, they all went out and um, kind of did their research to make it all kind of kosher. But for me, it felt like the Evil Dead days of just like going out, making a film with a bunch of friends um, in an isolated area with little to no money. And that's what was um, really fun about that whole experience for us. Now, the film itself is inspired by real life in some ways, but it's a composite. Uh, it is not based necessarily on one specific example of uh, an exorcism going wrong. There are, unfortunately and sadly, many of them uh, in New Zealand, uh, in Australia and elsewhere. Uh, what was what was it about that that concept, the idea of people going, oh, she's not mentally ill? Because it seems to always be a woman, uh, kind of, uh, uh, she's not mentally ill, she's possessed, and we have to literally force the demons out of her. What was it about that idea that drove this film? Some of that comes from your screenwriter, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So Alex um, actually came up with the script, but it goes sort of before that. I love all types of horror and I love possession horror and I love films like The Exorcist and Emily Rose and all that. But when I started doing research into it, I started to find cases of self-appointed exorcists that were kind of abducting people, women and children mostly, and brutalizing them. And that was so horrifying to me. It was just like, imagine a world where the people that love you, your your family, friends, all the loved ones, think that you're possessed and they tie you up and start, you know, torturing you essentially. And that I couldn't shake. So I took that to uh, Alex, who then started doing research, which you said was global. It's You've got the Janet Moses case in New Zealand. You've got uh, Annalise Michelle, which is back in the day, which is what um, a lot of the exorcists kind of took from as well. And it's just, um, it just happens. It's almost like a play-by-play situation where it's like someone's mentally ill, they say that she's possessed or they're possessed, and then they start torturing them until that person ends up dying or is brutally injured. And I, I just couldn't shake that from my mind. So that's where that sort of stemmed from. How do you incorporate themes like that into a film while also making it clear that you are not misogynist, you are not supporting this kind of violence against women? Because violence against women is such a a regrettable trope that uh, the the term fridging, for example, yeah. is used to say, "Oh, this is this is what will kind of I don't know drive our hero on to seek revenge." He's, he finds his dead girlfriend in the fridge. Uh, so yeah, it's a trope. But how do you use that trope sensitively and in an original way? Because the other fascinating thing for me about horror as a genre is taking genre tropes and inverting them, changing them, presenting them in new and fascinating ways. Yeah, so we had a lot of uh, female presence on this film. So it's like not only did we have like a 50-50 split in crew, but when we had this script, we took it to Lauren Simpson, who's the president of Women in Film and Television in Victoria. If you're not a part of it, you got to join it. It's the best. But um, she had a lot of notes um, and, you know, kind of helped shape the script from there. And then a lot of our female um, actors, so between Rosie, who was in Lake Mongo, um, uh, Rosie Trainer, and then we had Elisa Matengu and Georgia um, Ayers, who's our lead, they all had points to kind of help us shape this script, even to the point where we had Sarah Baker, who came on as a script uh, editor and helped kind of put in that female voice to make sure that we were kind of sensitive to that side because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a male director and, you know, I don't want to do like some torture porn where we've just got a woman in a chair getting beaten down. So, like, we made sure that we took the necessary steps and then we also had a wellness coordinator in Steph Power who made sure that she was our on-set psychologist and making sure that everyone was safe. So it was it was a really awesome environment, not to mention the fact that we had Georgia there who is the craziest personality in the world. She's like, when she's on, she looks possessed and when she's off, she's goofing around on set. So it was, it was so much fun. Yeah, the uh, the way she switches uh, is fascinating, but that's also a really interesting directorial technique as well, the way that you blur the boundary between what is real and what is believed to be real. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we had to play around a lot with that because it's like most of the film, she's in a chair. So it's like you, there's not much that she can do 
physically to kind of showcase that. So like there was a lot of rehearsal stuff that we did and a lot of uh, research that we kind of looked up on split personalities. So um, yeah, it's just a testament to her acting. I'd say that it was all me, but it, George is just a freak that way in, in the most complimentary way. Yeah. Now you filmed up around uh, Dalesford, Hepburn Springs, that kind of area, which is a fascinating contrast. We have exorcism, horror and <laughs> obsessive religious communities. And then we have this area that's, I don't know, known for mineral baths and, and wellness. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it was uh, just a really lovely, supportive community. All the people out there were so cool. It was just like we'd be shooting on the side of the road and you'd have a local pull up and they'd be like, hey, what's going on? And then, like, have a chat. And then one of them offered to offload a car that we had because we've got, like, a little bit of a car sequence and uh, we were just getting rid of that car. And they're like, yeah, I'll, I'll sort that out. But um, it, uh, the, I think the reason why we chose out there was primarily because of how scenic and beautiful it is, but also how haunting we can actually make that look because it's such a vast, um, expanded space. But then suddenly you can also still feel claustrophobic because there's nothing around. So, um, but you know, that was a, a credit to Carl Allison, who's just an amazing cinematographer and he can manipulate a composition to be whatever whatever you need it to be. Yeah. Now, I referenced earlier the the and you've also touched on that notion of uh, male violence towards women and misogyny. Um, and one of the things I liked about the, the say, 40 minutes I've watched of the film so far, as I say, I'll, I want the full cinematic experience. <laughs> I want to be not just watching something on a laptop, which does not do justice to sound design, kind of uh, the, the cinematography and more, but you can certainly appreciate the quality of the acting and more. Um, but it touches on... It, it references that uh, our kind of lead male protagonist, for example, may be sympathetic, but then we start to see kind of hints and signs that all is not well. You also hint and touch certainly briefly on uh, anti-vax uh, controversies, <laughs> for example, and the, the cult of wellness and where that can lead. Yeah, it's um, it's a film laced with a lot of subtext in there, and it's it's all kind of got to do with dangerous thinking. So it's like when you start listening to outside noise and you start making that factual, and then you start projecting that onto people, and and that's what we really wanted to have theme wise in this film, where it's just like you. You know, it's all well and good to have an opinion, but when you start pushing that belief, no matter what it is, whether it's like anti-vaccination or whether it's like like severe patriotism or if it's severe religious beliefs, when you start harming people with it, that's when we have a problem with it. And that's the stance that we take in this film. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of like all of those factors kind of layer on top of, of, of each other and then we have, like, this boiling point where it just kind of comes to a crescendo. So, like many horror films, uh, the subtext is that uh, extremism is the monster. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what we're going for. And that's why, you know, you brought up Ron, the character um, played by Dan Ewing, and it's such a complex character because it's like we play the sympathy card with him in a way because he's being manipulated, but also he has a choice in the matter and he ultimately makes the wrong decision and the wrong choice. But there's also something that Elisa brought up um, who, who claims that this film is actually, whilst it is a horror, it's also a masked over version of a domestic abuse situation where it's like a, a man that's not really taking his wife's um, feelings thoughts into consideration almost speaking for her making decisions for her because he knows best if you've just tuned in i'm speaking with director nick kazakis about his uh, feature film godless the eastfield exorcism a new australian horror film screening at the melbourne international film festival uh there's another session coming up uh, the classic late night horror uh, session, 10.45 at Acme 1. Uh, it's currently on standby only, but I always know that people will cancel tickets, reschedule for a different film uh, or just not show up because they've forgotten it on or they've decided too late. So keep an eye on the website, get on the standby queue uh, and maybe just even try your luck on fr this Friday night. At, uh, rock up at about, I don't know, 10.15 and hang around for half an hour and get yourself a ticket because someone will not show up. Now, Nick, it's also had another screening at MIF previously, what was the audience response? Incredible. It was just so... Okay, so we've gone global with it. So it's like we went to New Orleans and the US and... And the Philippines, I believe. Oh, yeah, that was like cinema release and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's been doing its cinema runs as well, which is just... 
like it's mind blowing to us. It's like, and then on top of that, they've been doing audio dubs. So watching the film in a different language is so wild. But um, uh, when we went over there, we we're just like, are people going to get this film? Well, yeah, because in the US, given the the kind of religious conservative element of the country, I could imagine that there could be some pushback against the film. But you screened at a dedicated horror festival. Yeah, yeah, and we thought maybe you know perhaps because of that there might be some resistance. But you know, and because there is the topical thing of Roe versus Wade, and we've got a lot of those themes represented in our film where there's no choice the woman doesn't have a choice over her body and all that but um it was awesome we, we like we got an amazing reaction i had people coming up to me grabbing me with their clammy hands saying you did this to me we had awesome reviews saying um i won't go into the profanity laced ones but at least the ones where it was just like the director owes me a xanax and things like that so it was so well received there and then coming to myth it felt a little bit more comfortable. We had like a bit of cast and crew in there, but still, you just want to you want to do Australian audiences proud. And um, go, like looking into the sea of four hundred people in a cinema was kind of daunting, but ultimately it was great. Like I had people coming up to me uh, congratulating us. Um, I think that Aussie support was really kind of heartwarming, and I'm I'm so excited to do it again. So it's like if you are coming to that Friday session this week, um, then let's catch up in the foyer earlier, talk to me afterwards because I'll be hanging around. So, like, I I love that engagement, you know, with the audience. Now, Nick, uh, you have, as we said, this is your first solo feature film as a director. You've done lots of shorts, you've done lots of music videos and so forth. They are their own beast. Did they prepare you for the demands of shooting an ambitious feature film on a low budget? Yeah, absolutely. So, going from like very poppy music videos from Tones and I to this is like a huge contrast. But the work ethic is kind of similar because you've got such a short timeline, short turnaround, and um, all the music video training really helped us. Like we've had to deliver music videos in like 24 to 48 hours, like completed with visual effects and all that kind of stuff. So um, using that model to kind of put it into a feature film helped us with some cheap tricks to get things over the line so it's uh it's been really fun um but also kind of like a good learning curve to be like all right we're prepared for this we've done it before you know we've done car crash sequences car chase sequences so like we're we're able to do that so we kind of implemented a lot of that stuff in the scripting stage and then moved it into the film and what's next Oh, I don't know. I'm looking. I'm looking for scripts. So, uh, no, but it's like we've got some exciting stuff like our producing team between Iris Arc and Visible have got like a few projects that they're sort of getting off the ground. So I'm kind of hanging around in the background and I'm just like a little brother, just like kind of hanging out with my parents uh, or with my older siblings and just being like, hey, like what what else can I tag along to? But I I am looking at uh, a few scripts at the moment, reading a few. And um, yeah, I'm just excited for the next thing, but I'm really itchy. It's like when you you catch the travel bug, you know, and suddenly it's like I, I want to just keep traveling and with this I just want to keep making new stuff I look forward to seeing what comes next but for now Godless the Eastfield Exorcism showing this Friday the 18th of August 10.45pm uh, at Acme as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival go to myth.com.au for details uh, I thought given everything we've been talking about that it would be appropriate to play a track about the murder of Bridget Cleary, an Irish woman killed by her husband and her husband's family in 1895. They claimed that she'd become a changeling. Uh, So uh, the sad history of women being murdered by religious men is not, sadly, uh, kind of contained just to the screen of Godless the Eastfield exorcism alone. Nick Kazakis, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I have to check that case out as well, but um, it's been it's been wild. It's been great. Thank you. Woo! Ah, that's right, Triple R. Across to Geelong, where Geelong Art Centre is about to have its grand reopening after a major development. I'm joined on the line by Joel McGuinness, the CEO and creative director of Geelong Art Centre. Joel, it must be rather exciting to be getting to this point. Good morning, Richard. Yeah, we're pretty excited. We're getting everything ready now. I was walking through the foyer before I came up to, to have a yarn with you and uh, there's some pretty excited uh, team members and it's looking beautiful. The building's looking beautiful down here in Geelong. So you're opening the doors to the public this Saturday, the 19th, uh, and yes, then you've got, are. what, a four-week festival? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're really excited to open to the public uh, from Saturday, uh, Saturday the 19th of August, and uh, incredible lineup with Jessica Melboy uh, on our main stage on the Saturday night. We've got a big comedy gala with Dave Thornton, Dill Rock, uh, Jaya Singer, Lizzie Hu. Just a beautiful lineup over the, the, the whole month. Uh, and lots of free stuff. We've got installations up um, by Indirect Object, which is looking cool. So people can just wander in, grab a coffee, check out the space. Spaces, uh, talk to some of our team, but yeah, there's still tickets for some of the events over the month. But just really looking forward to sharing these spaces with everybody. I can imagine because it, it's been a long project and an expensive one. It's been what 140 million dollar redevelopment. Yeah, that's right. So uh, fully funded by the state government, uh, which is incredible. So working really closely with Creative Victoria. Uh, but uh, look, there's a huge investment into Geelong. It's uh, such a fast-growing uh, part of the world. So many uh, incredible people have moved down here and lots of artists and really great uh, people making this place home. So the investment is really about you know, how do we support uh, artists and people that make work uh, and how do we get to share really incredible stories that, that resonate with people. And the building itself, we're really, you know, really excited with the, the design uh, and we think that it really lends itself to just sharing great stories with people. Now, devil's advocate question for a moment. Uh, government seemed very fond of having a legacy, something they can point to and go, my government built that. Uh, sure. Artists, on the other hand, say, why isn't the money being spent on artists and artistic projects instead of mm. infrastructure? What's your response? Sure. Look, I mean, I think that the the infrastructure is really important because it's a place to make work, a place to create work. And you know, certainly um, since I've been here uh, in at Geelong Arts Centre, one of the things that we've done is really look at how do we how do we support both? How do we support pathway to professional practice for artists? And one thing that I'm incredibly passionate about is supporting the small to medium and independent sector, supporting artists and and, and giving them a place and helping them creating space uh, and holding space and all that. You know, that includes. Uh, making sure that money is going directly to artists. So we've um, been making sure that uh, everything from micro grants of, you know, $1,000, $5,000 plus access to these beautiful studios to make work, as well as, you know, mentor support and then right the way through to commissioning and co-commissioning uh, professional works. And I, so I think that both, there is space for both. And I agree that needs to be make sure that really that we're supporting artists to do what they do best. In terms of the the redevelopment of Geelong Art mm. Centre. Talk to us about what the building looks like now because I understand there's been considerable engagement and consultation with local first peoples to ensure that the building reflects the, the cultural history of the, the region. Yeah, look, absolutely. When we... Uh, when I got here in 2018, we were able to rewrite the brief for what uh, what an art centre is. You know, what is it that institutions, uh, arts institutions should be? Uh, we really wanted to start a starting point where let's challenge the notion of black box theatres that kind of turn their back on the world and are exclusive. Uh, and and part of that rebrief was making sure that the beautiful, uh, profound First Nations stories of the Wadarong traditional owners, as well as um, Many other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists living in calling this region home were really part of the fabric of the building. So we um, did lots of um, really great workshops, community engagement, uh, and to hear from traditional owners that they have felt in the you know that the, for the first time deep listening has happened in a public project uh, in this region was really uh, such, a, such a privilege uh, to be a part of that. Uh, and the, each level of the building has a different uh, First Nations uh, narrative woven into the fabric of the building itself from ochre country through to the Moona Forest up to sky country with Bunjil the eagle and then up to night sky with uh, Balayang the bat who looks after the world when Bunjil goes to sleep. So it's been beautiful. And the response from the artists we commissioned for First Nations artists to uh, for artworks, both on the exterior of the building and through the building itself, um, you know, what the response from those artists, because there was this really beautiful narrative wrapped around the whole building, was really, uh, has been just, yeah, profound and really, really fun and, um, you know, deep as well. So we're, yeah, really excited that that, that is, has really translated through and then holds space for all people from every background to make work and to experience great art. 
And speaking of wrapping stories around the building, that's actually, mm. I think, what, physically reflected in some of the architecture. Yeah. It looks like the building has been kind of draped in a cloth, which is being pulled back to reveal part of it, but that's a permanent structure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, ARM architects have been really fabulous to work with and, you know, the the design What is unashamedly fun. It talks to the art form. It is colourful. It is bright. We want to make going to the theatre, going to live performance fun again uh, and make sure that everybody uh, feels comfortable in the space, that they know what, what the building is about and that they don't have this threshold anxiety of feeling like that they can't through work through the doors. So uh, we love the design. We think it's re- they've really nailed this. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's elevated. It's beautiful. It's fun, and as you walk through the building itself, there is stories around stories in around every corner, um, and that's something that we just absolutely adore. And it's also important that the, I guess the the facade of the building is now opened up. People can literally yeah. see inside. They can see people yeah. moving around. They can feel welcome. Because exactly. I, I certainly remember back in uh, in my in my twenties when my first mm. visit as an adult to Art Centre Melbourne, I didn't yeah. feel welcome. Uh, there's yeah. something bunker like about it. And just the at the time, for me, the feel of the space said, you don't belong yeah. here. This is for posh people. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the, the yeah. New Geelong Arts Centre, the fact that you can see into the heart of the building mm. is a, a really welcoming aspect of the design. Oh, I'm so glad that translates because that's exactly there was the intention. And, you know, the, from the front you can see what what is called the open house theatre and it literally is, the name is, is the, is the way that it wants it to be. It is open. You can see, we're setting up now for the, the the opening on the weekend and we have the, the door open and a massive window that's seven metres by seven metres. You can see people, our tech setting up. You can see them in, do, putting up the insulation. We can see what goes on what goes on literally behind the curtain uh, and that was really absolutely to try to demystify the fact that the arts are for some people and not for others um, and that is something that we're really genuine about um, and yeah it's layer upon layer and story upon story but we want that to be open uh, and inviting to everybody. And you've got a community open day uh, uh, mm. what this Sunday the 20th of August and then yeah. uh, over the next couple of days you've got backstage tours so again yeah People are always curious about a, a new landmark. I remember when Melbourne yeah. Museum uh, reopened in its current location. Mm. Huge queues of people wanting to check the space out. Same as when Fed Square and Acme opened for the first time. Yeah. People are curious. So this is a way to, to satisfy yeah. that curiosity. But also, again, to say, this building is for you. Uh, absolutely, mate. And so Community Open Day on Sunday, um, you know, we welcome people to come down, have a look through. Uh, you know, we will be able to get about, you know, closer to 2,500 people in this in these spaces. So it will be probably quite busy on, on Sunday, but absolutely come down. Uh, we've got uh, a, a celebration of um, community performance as well. So we've got uh, every half an hour in each of the theatres, there's no tickets required. Uh, people can uh, come down, they can check out the spaces and every half hour there is a different uh, performance from so many uh, amazing um, artists in the, in the community. Uh, and then you know that extends right through the next, uh, next uh, three weeks where people can grab tickets, come and check out something different. And if they just want to just come and, and be curious and check out the spaces. We will have um, our team there. Uh, we'll have the, the beautiful installation in the open house available for people to come in and, and check it out. I'm speaking with Joel McGuinness, who's the CEO and Creative Director of Geelong Art Centre, which is reopening to the public this weekend after a major redevelopment, and there's a four-week festival of work being presented. Now, Joel, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a bit of a history of redeveloping art centres, don't you? This is not the first one that you've overseen. No, it's not the first one. Um, and I, yeah, look, I don't know if it'll be the last one or not. But it's been, it's been, uh, it's, it's been incredible. It's been uh, a real, uh, a privilege to be involved in it and to, to, to really uh, try and champion the voice of uh, the communities that live here, of, of so many people that live here and, and create work here. I did the same thing in Bunbury in, in Western Australia, and I somehow, I don't know, I've become the redevelopment guy, which is fine for now, but. 
I also, you know, for me, it always is about artists and connecting with the art and the storytelling. And so for me, I really have, you know, clung on to that, even, you know, through the role as CEO and creative director, really to, to be the voice uh, to support and, and, you know, hold space for artists to, to do what they do best. Which will, I imagine, be nice to to refocus on once the reopening is out of the way. It can be, how is this building going to be used? What can be programmed? I mean, coming up yeah. as part of the, the festival, for example, the, the range of work that's been programmed, performances by Missy Higgins, Opera Australia presenting a, a classic work from the Opera Canon, The Barber of Seville. You've got a, a children's show from the fantastic Adelaide company Windmill, um, yeah. a, a work from Belvoir, a leading mm. company up in Sydney, and so much more. So... That range of work, I guess, is indicative of how you want this new building to be used. This is a place for everybody and all kinds of work from, from contemporary music through to classical, through to canonical and new. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yeah, you nailed, absolutely nailed that sort of the, the intention behind the opening festival was really when we were programming, we were like, right, we want multiple reasons for every single person in our community to come uh, that, you know, that really is, uh, you know, tell stories, but also, you know, there's some important messages behind the work. There's some, you know, beautiful work in there that is that really ha- has some um, stories behind it that, that need to be told. Um, so, yeah, we're really, really thrilled with the, the quality of work that's coming in and also the you know the the work that's booked in for the rest of this year we we have uh, we're looking at the calendar and we've clocked over now we'll have a thousand event days booked in these spaces in this next you know financial year so before june of next year which is just which is wild you know it's fantastic it's exactly what we wanted to happen um and as you said you know buildings are buildings and they're so important we want it to be part of the experience but they're nothing without artists and the, the storytelling that happens within these spaces. Geelong Art Centre is located on Little Mallop Street in Geelong. Uh, for more info, geelongartcentre.org.au. The Grand Opening Festival kicks off officially for the public from the 19th of August, runs through until the 23rd of September. Uh, there's such a broad range of events. And then, of course, as Joel has just said, much more to come in the year ahead. Joel McGuinness, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, Chookers for the reopening, and congratulations to you and all of your team on the work that's been done to get the, uh, the new building to this point. Thanks so much, Richard. Absolute pleasure to talk to you as always, and yeah, really excited to share these spaces with everybody. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now we're going to talk about contemporary dance, a new production being presented by the Stephanie Lake Company uh, on now at Abbotsford Convent, opened last night. It's called Escalator, but intriguingly for the Stephanie Lake Company, this is not one of Steph's own works. This is... Uh, five works from emerging choreographers, two of whom join me in the studio now, Kayla Douglas and Katie Mansour. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. So how did this project come about? Uh, um, was there a specific invitation, a personal request uh, to say, hey, do you want to come and, and effectively, do you want to come and play with us and, and make work? Yeah. um, Well, Katie got messaged first and we were actually (laughs) together at, what was it called? Gnocchi bar or something like that? Good Gnocchi. Good Gnocchi. Close. And we were, yeah, excitedly chatting about this opportunity that she had received. And then a couple of days later, I also got a message, which was really nice. Um, (laughs) But it all came together quite quickly, I think, even for Steph and her producer, Beth, and the team at the convent as well. So it was quite a quick turnaround. It was only kind of a couple of months ago that um, I think we got the initial email. So, yeah, it's come together very quickly. Which is not uncommon in the dance world, that works are created. Like in theatre, for example, you might get if you're lucky, four to six weeks rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that in dance sometimes it's like, right, we've done a few developments in the studio and now you've got a week to, to, to actually make the show in the space or something like that. Um, 
Katie, has it been a, a similar, not a pressure cooker environment, but mm. perhaps a, a greenhouse or hothouse environment? Yeah, it has been a bit of a hothouse. I had a bit of a holiday planned um, in amongst the rehearsal period, so I was kind of like, oh... I guess I'll just holiday and come back and make it happen. So, yeah, it was just a bit of a really wanting to make this work. It will work, um, but just jamming as much as I could in pre and post holiday. And, yeah, I think everyone kind of felt like they were in the same boat. It was just a bit of we really want to make this happen, really keen, let's just do it. Yeah. And who are the other choreographers involved? Um, so there's Harrison Ritchie Jones, um, Jaden Wall, and Mel, whose last name I just realised I don't fam. know. Well, fam. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and Luke as well, whose last name I've forgotten. Luke, Luke Curry Richardson. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god, I'm I'm the worst friend ever. <laughs> this is why I always have things written down in front of me, so yeah. that because uh, my brain will freeze at an inopportune moment. I'll go, but I know that person really well. Yeah. <laughs> well, as soon as you said who are the other people, I was like, oh no. <laughs> Now, um, you've both worked with Stephanie Lake before. You were, you've both performed in Colossus, which yes. was an, am- an amazing work featuring, what, 50 dancers? Yeah. Which, yeah. Huge. Big yeah. hustle. Yeah. So yeah. was that your introduction to Steph's choreography, her choreographic vocabulary in the company generally, or have yeah. you had different experiences previously? Um, well, I'd seen her work before, um, so I kind of... Yeah, and I fell in love with Steph and the stuff that she does, seeing her performances. Um, And that really inspired me as a choreographer before we even had the opportunity to work with her. And then in our final year of full-time training, yeah, we got that opportunity, which was absolutely wild. And I almost wasn't able to do it because I had another project on. Um, But thankfully I was able to do it. Um, Yeah, but... Two weeks before the show, sadly, I dislocated and tore my shoulder, (laughs) which was devastating. But thankfully, Steph was um, really great and she kept me on to help out kind of on the sidelines with like rehearsals and whatnot. And that really solidified for me how much I loved being on the other side of things as well. So, yeah. And Mm. then we got to do it a year later anyway. So I got the chance to do both, which was really great to be on one side of it and helping Steph out and then actually getting to do the work the year later. So, yeah. And we've done a few other things with Steph as well. Yeah, I think um, in my first couple of years of training, we did some kind of workshops with Steph um, and they were always a complete hoot. They were just so (laughs) much fun. Um, And I had obviously followed her work as well um, and seen a bunch of her stuff. So, yeah, Colossus was kind of the first opportunity to work with her. um, The big kahuna. The big kahuna, yeah. (laughs) And it was, yeah, obviously large-scale work, um, but, yeah, seeing her navigate so many people and, and being able to be in process with so many people was, yeah, mm. really awesome. And yeah. you've also had a, a shared experience that you've both done the um, uh, the, the Dance House uh, Emerging Choreographers Program. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we did too. Yeah. <laughs> did you different do it at the year. same time? No, no, no different, different years. years. Yeah. yeah. So I was in the first iteration of it and, Katie, you were in the second yeah. year. Yeah. 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 Now, Kayla, for people who are unfamiliar with choreography, mm. Talk to us through the process of what a choreographer actually does because yeah. if people see contemporary dance, they when I my first experiences, early experiences at least with contemporary dance, I found it baffling. I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> read too, it. Actually. I couldn't read it in the way I could read a, a, a piece of theatre, for example. Mm. But over time I became very comfortable with it. Now contemporary dance is absolutely hands down, one of my favourite art forms. Amazing. But you kind of you watch kind of dances, I don't know, throwing shapes. Uh, and <laughs> can, it's like how do they do that? Where does that come from? What does that movement mean? So talk to us about kind of how you've been trained as a choreographer and, and, and what, you, what a choreographer actually does. Yeah, I think it really depends on person to person and the type of work you're making. Um, sometimes people come in with material all ready to go. Um, but I guess I can speak to the way that I work. Um, I like to be really collaborative. So I'll come in with like a concept or an idea and typically I like to really flesh that out and talk about it with the dancers and oftentimes I'm kind of like 
I don't really know what the thing is yet, but I'll know it when I see it. And so my dancers will maybe start with like an improv um, just so they can get some thoughts going and then we'll take that improv and then they'll, you know, um, task it, I usually call it, where they'll start to kind of set things. Um, And then, yeah, we kind of pull things out from there. And usually for me, it's something like really random or insignificant, like, you know, at the start of this work, they've got this section with this really intense breathing at the beginning. And it was just like an offhand comment that Doreen, one of the dancers had made. And I was like, oh, that thing, like that thing feels really like Mm. authentic and real to me. And so let's grab that and flesh that out. And Mm. yeah, that tends to be the thing that I do really collaborative and just like trying to find the truth of the thing, I yeah. guess. It's like a, it sounds almost like a sculptural practice in some way, kind of mm. chiseling away the bits yeah. that don't look like what you want until you <laughs> yeah. end up with the shape you want. Yeah. And it's always just like uncovering it. Like people are like, oh, I'm so excited to see your work. And I'm like, me too. Like, <laughs> you know, like I have no idea what it is yet, but like we kind of, we find it together. And sometimes I feel more like a curator than like a choreographer, you know, like mm. kind of, yeah, piecing piecing the bits together. Yeah. And Katie, talk to us about your practice and how you create work. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting question. I think that I generally think of, um, I just get random kind of images or scenes in my head. Um, and I'm often inspired by um, text and word and often incorporate visual media um, in my work. So it can be like for this work, um, for Escalator, it was kind of um, these YouTube videos that I've been watching of um, men responding really badly to questions that women will ask them about periods. Um, <laughs> and I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. So that kind of prompted this um, question about um, or, or thought about how frustrating it is to be a woman and be suffering through the menstrual cycle all the time um and so that just yeah kind of brought on these kind of images or scenes in my head that I kind of build together yeah and what's the the piece called menstruation the musical (laughs) yeah and it is a musical (laughs) truly (laughs) yeah there's no singing but it is (laughs) how do you create a musical without singing um the drama you bring the drama Mm, Yeah. mm, yeah 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 I mean Dolly Parton's involved so that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. She holds so, down the fort yeah. in the singing department. Yeah. Um, we are not trained singers. <laughs> we are not trained singers. Yeah. I'm not trying to be. But, yeah, bringing the drama um, has brought it alive Yeah, in a musical sense. <laughs> <laughs> and are you working with one another in the creation of the works? Like some, one of you performing in somebody else's piece, for example, or...? Well, <laughs> uh, no, technically not. So we've all been off doing our own thing and it was really nice for the dress and tech rehearsals to come together and get to see what everyone had made. Um, that was really mm. that was really special. But I have a little cameo in Katie's work. I'm um, uh, controlling some props. <laughs> <laughs> She's controlling some props. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. it has been quite um, – we have all been quite um, – separated and isolated in the process I guess just because of how quickly it's all come together it's meant that um yeah we we've just all done our thing but at the same time for the dress and their tech rehearsal is really nice to Mm. come together and see um the diversity in the in the melting pot um every work is so different you're definitely in for like a wild ride it's a degustation (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. a dance degustation yeah Uh, (laughs) we've heard about uh katie's work menstruation the musical Mm. talk to us about yours well actually uh kind of they're kind of relevant to each other Mm. so my work's called hysterics and it's exploring female rage um, so, you know, I feel like the two the go hand wavelength. in hand. Yeah, yeah, What's yeah. Going on? The two female choreographers <laughs> made a work about menstruation <laughs> and about female rage. Go figure. Um, yeah, but it was a lot of different, like, inspiration. So, like, aesthetically really inspired by, like, roller derby and, like, Greek mythos and, like, sirens and that kind of stuff. And then musically um, really inspired by Credence Clearwater Revival and Janis Joplin and, like, our mutual friend Remy, um, he made the music and it's just, 
yeah, like this haunting rock and roll score. Yeah, like he awesome. killed it. Yeah, he's a legend. And can you tell us a little bit about the works that have been made by Harrison Ritchie Jones, Luke Curry Richardson, and the collaboration between Melissa Pham and Jaden Wall? Yeah, uh, well, Mel and Jay, their work is, oh, they're stunning together. Just like really beautiful movement, really satisfying and really clever, mm. um, really exploring like form. Um, yeah, and they're, they're just so sleek. So, so sleek. sleek, yeah. And they both have these like two solos that really um, just show them off beautifully. They're mm. incredible dancers. Um, Harrison Richie Jones is this amazing kind of like Baroque-esque love story um, <laughs> that's like some kind of, yeah, dance extravaganza but also really dramatic. And satirical yeah, and yeah. so funny. Like yeah. you can't stop yourself from laughing. It's yeah. just, yeah. It's great. Yeah. And then Luke's piece is about his experience as a First Nations man. Um just yeah insane um really difficult to watch at some point but really important to keep watching and um yeah he the sound the lighting the choices that he's made um for the movement and the way he's portraying um his story is just unreal yeah Yeah, he's very special all of these works are being presented uh, by Stephanie Lake Company in association with the Abbotsford Convent. Uh, uh, a, um, uh, I was going to say a, it's not a triple bill, it's not a quadruple bill, it's a, a, a quintettle bill. Quintettle bill. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not too sure, yeah, but we'll go with that. Quintettle bill. <laughs> yeah, I don't think quintettle is a real word. So let's just say five new <laughs> and different dance works under the the uh, under the, the banner Escalator. Uh, it's happening at Abbotsford Convent. The opening night was last night. Uh, there are t- performances uh, and t- through until Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Saturday. 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 Saturday's the last show. So uh, tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at 7.30pm till 8.30pm in the Magdalen Laundry and Industrial School at the Abbotsford Convent located at 1 St Heliers Street, Abbotsford. Uh, You can uh, book by going to abbotsfordconvent.com.au. Just go to the event section um, and you can also find out more about Escalator and about all of the artists involved with Escalator by going to www.stephanielake.com.au It sounds like a, a fascinating collection of work. You got to premiere the works last night. Mm. What was the audience response? It was pretty great. We had some stomping feet. It was yeah. really loud when we all came out to do our bows. So, yeah, that was really awesome. I felt yeah. very held and loved by yeah, the people definitely. there. Yeah, Yeah, really excited to keep it do going. Do it again. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> I've been chatting with Kayla Douglas and Katie Mansour about their work and other works presented as part of Escalator uh, on, as I said, at the Abbotsford Convent uh, until this Saturday. Uh, you can jump onto the Abbotsford Convent website for more details. Thank you both for Iconic. joining us. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for having us. Triple R. Into the home stretch of the program, and I'm joined in the studio by playwright Emily Sheehan, whose new pr- play for Red Stitch Actors Theatre Monument opened last night. Yes. Was it a roaring success? It was a wonderful opening night. Uh, we had six preview performances before opening last night, which is such a luxury for a new Australian play to have that time to watch it evolve in front of an audience and test and change things. And last night felt like such a wonderful consolidation of all the work we've been doing. I'm so glad to hear it. And you're right, that is rare to have that many previews, particularly uh, at a company like Red Stitch or even kind of more so if you're doing fringe theatre or something like that, which you've done and won an award for. Um, uh, yeah, the the idea of... Because the work is never finished until it's in front mm. of an audience and then you get the chance as the playwright to really see how lines land and, and tweak and and tuck a little bit. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of like when you write a script and you um, begin working on a play, it's almost similar to like writing a musical score. It's that you're composing it for actors to um, have the words be embodied and to be delivered in front of an audience. And so the rehearsal process is such a 
piece of hearing it out loud and seeing how it sounds and it fits and it moves and the rhythms. And then once you put it in front of an audience, you ha- you get that extra layer and you can start to play with, um, okay, so in a live space, in, in front of a live audience, how do we need to also make adjustments to make sure all the moments are landing how we want them to land and lifting when we want them to lift. And it's been such a joy. Now, before we start talking about uh, Monument itself and the plot and some of the ideas yes. behind the play, I know that you've also done uh, work as a dramaturg professionally. Does being a dramaturg, which is, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with the term, dramaturgy is the uh, uh, the science of telling stories and how to fine-tune them, how to make sure that um, everything is lucid and clear and, mm. and, and so forth. Do you think your work as a dramaturg has made you a better playwright? Oh, what a good question. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that when I work with other writers to develop their script and their story and their ideas, it's such a space of holding questions and space and trying to um, ask them the questions that are going to get them you know, to find their own answers towards the vision that they have in their mind. And I suppose developing that skill of being a wonderful listener and to to try to understand the story that's on a writer's heart to tell, when I, when I get to be in that space of the writer and having the support of a dramaturg and then, of course, a director, designer, they are asking you dramaturgical questions, um, I, I feel like... I, I'm really able to receive that and and feel like it's actually so juicy and delicious to have other people ask you questions about your play to draw those um, more of those ideas out of your mind and those images out of your mind and to get them out onto the page. Now, Monument, uh, which, as we said, opened last night at Red Stitch, was developed through the Red Stitch mm. Inc. new writing program. Um, to quote some of your own words back at you. What was the vision that you had in mind for Monument when you set out to write it? Yes, well, I first had this really clear stage image of an extraordinary woman having her makeup done because, uh, well, I love makeup and I love, um, you know, politics and news and uh, pop culture and all those sorts of things. And I felt like the makeup chair is such a live space and holds a lot of potential for um, disclosure to happen, for intimacy to happen and that someone being that close to your face for 90 minutes, you get to know each other really quickly. So it's like I had this idea of a concept and then uh, because that felt really exciting to write into. It was then a matter of developing out, well, what is the most interesting journey we can put these two people on, these two women on in, in the world of this play? And that actually the way that it, that it has unfolded is we haven't really drifted too far from that original image in terms of the actors are doing a live hair and makeup session um, over the 90 minutes of the performance and it's all set in the makeup chair over 90 minutes, one makeup session and a, and a whole political backstory and global narrative unfolds. Yeah, because the uh, your two characters, you've got uh, Edith Aldridge, who's the youngest woman to be elected leader of her country. Yes. She is preparing for such an important moment. Yes. Uh, and you've got Rosie, a young makeup artist from David Jones. Yes. Uh, what fascinates me about that setup is one, what you've already kind of acknowledged is the enforced intimacy mm. of a space like that. People will learn about each other. They cannot not learn about each other in that kind of setting unless somebody sits there sullenly and silently for 90 minutes, which is not going to make great drama. But how do you make drama out of a 90 minute makeup session? Yes. Well, first of all, a lot of research into. Um, into well it's uh, as what I've learned along the way is it's called like touch and talk spaces so that people do when they are in you know beauty therapy or in hair the hairdresser chair or um, even the doctor's office when they're going oh does it hurt when I press here in your glands or whatever it is that when someone lays hands on us we we uh, start to disclose things so re- uh, researching into that really helped me find where do I want to take the conversation that these two women are going to be having and then also it is a real challenge with uh, – it's not like you get to the highest point of tension and then you can go, ah, oh, scene break, next scene. You have to keep it going and that's been uh, 
probably the most amount of development has been going into how do you actually keep a story going for 90 minutes and it feels um so it still feels like it's got all the twists and turns and and that unraveling effect that a story that maybe has a kind of longer timeline um but I think we've we've really nailed it, and the makeup lends itself to that because the the drama of them getting ready in time, literally in front of us, like, can she get the hair up? Can she put all the curls in? Can she pin it up this way? Can we get the foundation on and the lipstick and the dress? It's they have to move so fast, and it's really quite fun to watch. Like you're on the edge of your seat, being like, are they going to finish? Which also. Uh is in some ways an insight into how theatre is made uh, because anybody who's been to a to a, a show involving multiple cast members knows that they're often doubling and somebody might have to walk off stage, completely change their costume and get back on stage in two minutes flat yes. if they're lucky. Yes. Um, and so that idea of then transposing the tension of that moment and the skill of that kind of transformation and playing it out on stage in real time with a ticking clock and then I'm guessing some added personal and political drama yes. mixed into the into the, the, the kettle. Um, that's a terrible metaphor. I was going to say mixed into the pot. That's probably better. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so all those ingredients combining. Yes, it's been really fun and uh, you're right in that it is almost such a celebration of, like, what art is and, and live performance and um, I've been playing a lot in terms of the story of the play but also the, the way that the play is constructed around I guess like art and artistry and high art and then also like mass uh, mass production and what's consumable and what's purchasable and how do we buy into um, certain images and construct our image and because when we're in the public eye participation in beauty culture it's sort of non-negotiable we're always going to be watched and observed and rather than trying to create a piece that's like post image we're actually not post image in in some ways our culture is so image focused now and that the construction of a human um and the kind of people that need to occupy space and to gain trust and for us to believe in them and and find them um to that we believe there is some sort of authenticity in what they're doing. There's also a performativity there and it's been really fun to play with construction versus authenticity versus the performance of it all and that's been a really fun blend in terms of where we're at in our culture and also what art really is. In terms of where we're at in our culture, any woman is going to resonate with the idea of being watched and being observed. Mm. Uh, but for a female politician, a female political leader in mm. particular, I suspect that pressure is even greater. I just, you don't have to think too far back to think about the way Julia Gillard, every aspect of her clothes, her hair, her posture, her voice was scrutinised and filleted and often in a way that male politicians never were. Yes. Uh, how important was kind of, was there kind of research for you to look at the way female political leaders in particular yes. are, are shown in the media. Yes, absolutely. An enormous amount of research. I would have been, so we sort of are developing over this around two, two and a half years and across the course of that, a lot. I was doing a lot of research and also working with subject matter experts in politics and journalism and then also in the makeup world and, and them supporting me to make it as credible as possible. But yes, what you've touched on, people, um, there's been so many little gems along the way and um, I was researching, uh, yeah, Julia Gillard, who you've mentioned and she speak, spoke a lot about needing to like get a uniform and stick to it because that way people are going to listen to what you're saying. I mean, they're always going to look at you, but if you can create consistency and repeat consistency and not have any variation in the way that you look, you're less likely to be have be commented on the way that you're looked and, and more hopefully you'll get more airtime around what you say and then so we play with that a little bit in the piece and there's a lot of other funny throwbacks around her um when alexandria ocasio-cortez uh, was elected the youngest uh, member of congress in the united states um the lipstick that she wore the night she won like sold out at sephora that week and they couldn't get 
they couldn't get it anywhere, everyone wanted it and it started to blur that line between celebrity versus a politician and um, there's so many little real world gems that as I started researching revealed themselves to me and we've found ways to squirrel them into the play um, in a really fun way and hopefully people feel like, oh, so much of it rings true. And what about conflict? Because the the heart of so much drama is conflict yes. between individuals. Yes. Talk to us about, without going into spoiler territory, mm. talk to us about how you then incorporate that aspect of drama into this two-hander that we're talking about, which, in case you've missed the name of the play, is called Monument, and it's on now at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. Yes, working with conflict. So always a story is about the two people in the room and what's going on between them and their relationship and how it evolves over the story. And so... Uh, the finding the conflict between these two human beings in at this moment of their life was about finding, well, really, who when they enter the space, who they think they are and who they believe the other person to be, you're often based on assumption and um, based on the image that the, the one person is putting forward. So it was about constructing a really strong image for each of them to walk into that space, that persona, and then to find ways to strip it away as... Um, as the story goes on and as they start to affect each other, which pieces of their persona do they drop? Where are slippages in who they say they are versus who they might be revealing themselves to be? And then making sure that they're always calling each other out gently, of course. Well, you know, and more, less and less gentle as the play goes on. But when you're that close to each other and you're in um, almost a... Um, they need each other. They need each other to get out the door, trying to find a way that we can play with the, the natural tension um, when, you, when you feel like someone isn't being honest with you. I'm speaking with playwright Emily Sheehan about Monument, her new work uh, being presented by Red Stitch Actors Theatre. And I'll give all the details in, the mo in a moment, but for now, if you're intrigued, you can go to redstitch.net to book and uh, find out more. Um, Emily, you mentioned earlier at the start of the interview that amongst the things that fascinate you are politics and, mm. and popular culture. Mm. What about class? And I, this is particularly relevant because I'm just thinking of the these a political leader versus to be, to use a, a, a fairly blunt term, a shop girl. Yes. Um, is, is class something that you also are interested in exploring in this play and in, in other elements of your work? Because it is still an element of Australian theatre that is, that, well, it, it's an element of Australian culture that some Australian theatre shies away from. Yes, this, this play, class, is such a huge piece of it. And we, the, with the director, Ella Cordwell, was very interested in the class dynamics going on in this and supported me to develop that, that aspect and that layer of the narrative even further. Um, something that we found as we were researching um, in terms of Australians and class, I think it was the, I'm going to slightly jumble this, but the um, Bureau of Statistics found in the census that something like 90% of Australians identify, personally identify as middle class, but that's not possible. 90% can't be middle class. So the idea of who do we uh, see, what class do we see ourselves to be a part of? How are we performing that to one another? And then actually in, well, and in this particular story, we're playing with inherited privilege, assumed privilege, power of the expert versus power um, in terms of like deferred power, power of, you know, you walk into a space and you have power because you do have status versus who's actually right and that's been a really fun way to yeah find other threads of the story and to dig into that Emily tell us about some of the uh the other creatives involved in the show you've mentioned Ella the director Talk to us about the, the two actors who are bringing your characters to life. Yes, I would love to. Okay, so Sarah Sutherland is playing the world leader. Sarah is an ensemble member at Red Stitch and Sarah has been working with myself and Ella since um, since 2021, I believe, to develop this character. And then we have the wonderful Julia Hanna, who's a new VCA grad. She, I think, had just finished drama school and auditioned for us and we absolutely loved her, who plays the makeup <coughs> artist. And Julia has had the mammoth task of learning how to do hair and makeup. Um, she trained with the wonderful Harriet O'Donnell, who's our makeup consultant on the project. Um, Harriet works for Channel 7 and does politicians' makeup all the time. So Harriet and Julia worked together to create a look and then to practice doing that look in 90 minutes. And it's been 
incredible what she achieves. Um, and then also our wonderful designer, Sophie Woodward, has just done a, a beautiful job with the set and costumes. And it's such a delicious textural experience seeing this play. Like it's, um, it's beautiful. It, it's so luxurious. There's so many fabrics and textures. And then an audience member last time said, I, I felt like it smelt like we were in a high-end hotel room. And we were like, well, I guess that the product she's using have these, do have smells and that the beauty of an intimate space is that you really do feel like you're in the makeup chair with Edith. Monument, a new Australian play presented by Red Stitch Actors Theatre, is on now and runs through until the 3rd of September. Shows are Wednesdays to Saturday at 7.30pm, Sundays at 6.30pm, 12pm matinees on Wednesday the 23rd and 30th uh, and 2pm on Saturday the 26th of August. There's also going to be a couple of post-show Q&As at the Wednesday matinees on the 23rd and the 30th and uh, Thursday the 24th uh, that night as well. So are you taking part in those Q&As? Yes, I'll be at all the Q&As and so will our director Ella. Um, It's really nice. We've got a big juicy season. We've got four weeks. Um, Yeah, lots of evening shows, lots of matinees and and Q&As as well. That is the beauty of live theatre and also locally developed art. I mean, we're in Melbourne. I live in Melbourne. I've written the play. Ella is also in Melbourne and that way we are in the foyer and that is something that's really different, I think, in theatre is that you can see a show if the ideas resonate with you. Have a chat afterwards. Like, just have a chat in the foyer and discuss the work because that, I think, is what theatre has that um, that's sort of different to other mediums, perhaps, is that you see a show and then you move into a space as a collective, as a group, and you can start to talk about the ideas together. For all the times and ticket details and dates of the Q&A, in case you, uh, you didn't scribble it down while I was talking, and why should you? You didn't know I was going to say it. You weren't prepared. Go to www.redstitch.net to uh, find out more and book to see Monument. Uh, Emily Sheehan's new play. Uh, Red Stitch is located at the rear of 2 Chapel Street, St Kilda East. Uh, It's very easy to find and get to on public transport or by driving. And if you need a local landmark to orient you because you haven't been there before, it's just over the road from the Astor Cinema. Mm -hmm. So very easy to find. So as I said, go to redstitch.net for more details and to book to see Emily Sheehan's monument. Emily, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rich. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 